Imagine how much better the world would be if everyone woke up well-rested every day. That's why I and the team make The Sleepy Bookshelf. Join us in this mission. You can help by supporting the show via our premium feed, which will get you ad-free access to the entire bookshelf and exclusive bonus episodes. If premium isn't for you, that's okay. Recommending your favorite episode to a friend or family member is just as meaningful. Thank you for your support, and I hope you sleep well tonight. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. Thank you for joining me. This evening, we'll be returning to Jane Eyre. Before that, let's relax for a moment. Get comfortable where you are and take a deep breath. Stay very still and continue to breathe deeply while you think about every part of your body. Acknowledge its existence and how it feels before moving on to the next part, beginning with your toes and your feet, your calves, your knees and thighs, your hips and glutes, your lower back, your stomach, your chest and upper back, your neck, your ears, your jaw, your eyes and eyebrows, your forehead, the back of your head. Think about your shoulders and upper arms, your elbows, your lower arms, your wrists, and each of your fingers. Now if you feel like it, give yourself a big stretch and relax. The last time we were here, Jane was still at Gateshead Hall, awaiting the death of her aunt. Mrs. Reed had been mute for days and was currently sleeping, while Jane looked out the window of the sick room. Mrs. Reed then spoke to her and asked her who she was. When Jane confirmed her identity, Mrs. Reed asked her to go into her dresser drawer to find a letter. It was from a few years ago and was written by Jane's maternal uncle in Madeira, asking for Jane to be sent to him so he could look after her and share his inheritance. Mrs. Reed admitted she had already responded and told him Jane had died in the typhoid outbreak at Lowood. That night, Mrs. Reed passed away. Jane stayed at Gateshead until the funeral. Georgiana went to London and married advantageously, while Eliza travelled to Europe and became a nun. Jane made her way back to Thornfield Hall. As she walked towards the house, she came upon Mr. Rochester, They spoke of his upcoming wedding, and Jane returned to the house. So we pick back up tonight, with Jane still feeling very much in love with Mr. Rochester, and Midsummer falling over Thornfield.
Chapter 23 A splendid midsummer shone over England, skies so pure, suns so radiant as were then seen in long succession, seldom favour even singly our wave-girt land. It was as if a band of Italian days had come from the south, like a flock of glorious passenger birds, and lighted to rest them on the cliffs of Albion. The hay was all got in, the fields round Thornfield were green and shorn, the roads white and baked, the trees were in their dark prime hedge and wood, full-leaved and deeply tinted, contrasted well with the sunny hue of the cleared meadows between. On Midsummer Eve, Adele, weary with gathered wild strawberries in Hay Lane half the day, had gone to bed with the sun. I watched her drop asleep and when I left her, I sought the garden. It was now the sweetest hour of the twenty-four, day its fervid fires had wasted, and dew fell cool on panting plain and scorched summit. Where the sun had gone down in simple state, pure of the pomp of clouds, spread a solemn purple, burning with the light of red jewel and furnace flame at one point, on one hill peak, and extending high and wide, soft and still softer, over half heaven. The east had its own charm, or fine deep blue and its own modest gem, a rising and solitary star. Soon it would boast the moon that she was yet beneath the horizon. I walked a while on the pavement, but a subtle, well-known scent, that of a cigar, stole from some window. I saw the library casement, open a handbreadth. I knew I might be watched thence, so I went apart into the orchard. No nook in the grounds more sheltered and more Eden-like. It was full of trees. It bloomed with flowers. A very high wall shut it out from the court on one side. On the other, a beach avenue screened it from the lawn. At the bottom was a sunk fence, its sole separation from lonely fields. A winding walk bordered with laurels and terminating in a giant horse chestnut circled at the base by a seat led down to the fence. Here one could wander unseen. While such honeydew fell, such silence reigned, such gloaming gathered, I felt as if I could haunt such shade forever. But in threading the flower and fruit parterres at the upper part of the enclosure, enticed there by the light, the now rising moon cast on this more open quarter, my stamp is stayed, not by sound, not by sign, but once more by a warning fragrance. Sweet briar and southern wood jasmine, pink and rose, have long been yielding their evening sacrifice of incense. This new scent is neither of shrub nor flower. It is 
I know it well. It is Mr. Rochester's cigar. I look round and I listen. I see trees laden with ripening fruit. I hear a nightingale warbling in a wood half a mile off. No moving form is visible. No coming step audible. But that perfume increases. I must flee. I make for the wicked leading to the shrubbery and I see Mr. Rochester entering. I step aside into the ivy recess. He will not stay long. He will soon return whence he came, and if I sit still, he will never see me. But no, eventide is as pleasant to him as to me, and this antique garden as attractive and he strolls on, now lifting the gooseberry tree branches to look at the fruit, large as plums, with which they are laden, now taking a ripe cherry from the wall, now stooping towards a knot of flowers, either to inhale their fragrance or to admire the dew beads on their petals. Great moth goes humming by me. It alights on a plant at Mr. Rochester's foot. He sees it and bends to examine it. Now he has his back towards me, thought I, and he's occupied too. Perhaps if I walk softly, I can slip away unnoticed. I trode on an edging of turf that the crackle of the pebbly gravel might not betray me. He was standing amongst the beds, at a yard or two distant from where I had to pass, the moth apparently engaging him. I shall get by very well, I meditated. As I crossed his shadow, thrown long over the garden by the moon, not yet risen high, he said, quietly, without turning, Jane, come and look at this fellow. I had made no noise. He had not eyes behind. Could his shadow feel? I started at first, and then I approached him. Look at his wings, said he. He reminds me rather of a West Indian insect. One does not often see so large and cheery a night rover in England. There, he is flown. The moth roamed away. I was sheepishly retreating also, but Mr. Rochester followed me, and when we reached the wicket, he said, Turn back. On so lovely a night, it is a shame to sit in the house, and surely no one can wish to go to bed while sunset is thus at meeting with moonrise. It is one of my faults that though my tongue is sometimes prompt enough at an answer, there are times when it sadly fails me in framing an excuse, and always the lapse occurs at some crisis when a facile word or plausible pretext is specially wanted to get me out of painful embarrassment. I did not like to walk at this hour alone with Mr. Rochester in the shadowy orchard, but I could not find a reason to allege for leaving him. I followed with lagging step and thoughts busily bent on discovering a means of extrication, but he himself looked so composed and so grave also, I became ashamed of feeling any confusion. The evil, if evil existed or prospective there was, seeming to lie with me only. His mind was unconscious 
inquired. Jane, he recommenced as we entered the laurel walk and slowly strayed down in the direction of the sunk fence and the horse chestnut. Thornfield is a pleasant place in summer, is it not? Yes, sir, I replied. You must have become in some degree attached to the house, you who have an eye for natural beauties and a good deal of the organ of adhesiveness. I am attached to it, indeed. Though I don't comprehend how it is, I perceive you have acquired a degree of regard for that foolish little child Adele, too, and even for the simple Dame Fairfax. Yes, sir, in different ways. I have an affection for both. And would be sorry to part with them. Yes. Pity, he said, and sighed and paused. It is always the way of events in this life, he continued presently. No sooner have you got settled in a pleasant resting place than a voice calls out for you to rise and move on, but the hour of repose is expired. Must I move on, sir? I asked. Must I leave Thornfield? I believe you must, Jane. I am sorry, Janet, but I believe indeed you must. This was a blow, but I did not let it prostrate me. Well, sir, I shall be ready when the order to march comes. It has come now. I must give it tonight. Then you are going to be married, sir. Exactly. Precisely. With your usual acuteness, you have hit the nail straight on the head. Soon, sir. Very soon, my... That is, Miss Eyre. And you'll remember, Jane, the first time I, or rumour, plainly intimated to you that this was my intention, to put my old bachelor's neck into the sacred noose, to enter into the holiest state of matrimony, to take Miss Ingram to my bosom. In short, she's an extensive armful, but that's not to the point. One can't have too much of such a very excellent thing as my beautiful Blanche. Well, as I was saying, listen to me, Jane. You are not turning your head to look after more moths, are you? That was only a lady clock child flying away home. I wish to remind you that it was you who first said to me, with that discretion I respect in you, with that foresight, prudence, and humility which befit your responsible and dependent position, that in case I married Miss Ingram, that you and little Adele had better trot forthwith. I pass over the sort of slur conveyed in this suggestion on the character of my beloved. Indeed, when you are far away, Janet, I'll try to forget it. I shall notice only its wisdom, which is such that I have made my law of action. Adele must go to school, and you, Miss Eyre, must get a new situation. Yes, sir. I will advertise immediately. And meantime, I suppose... I was going to say... I suppose I may stay here till I find another shelter to betake myself to, but I stopped, feeling it would not do to risk a long sentence, for my voice was not quite under command. In about a month I hope to be a bridegroom, continued Mr. Rochester, and in the interim I shall myself look out for employment and an asylum for you. Thank you, sir. I'm sorry to give... But here he interrupted. Oh, no need to apologize. 
I consider that when a dependent does her duty as well as you have done yours, she has a sort of claim upon her employer for any little assistance he can conveniently render her. Indeed, I have already, through my future mother-in-law, heard of a place that I think will suit. It is to undertake the education of the five daughters of Mrs. Dionysus O'Gall of Bitternut Lodge, Connaught, Ireland. You'll like Ireland, I think. They're such warm-hearted people there, they say. Tis a long way off, sir. No matter. A girl of your sense will not object to the voyage or the distance. Not the voyage, but the distance. Then the sea is a barrier. From what, Jane? From England, and from Thornfield, and... Well... From you, sir. I said this almost involuntarily, and with as little sanction of free will, my tears gushed out. I did not cry so as to be heard, however. I avoided sobbing. The thought of Mrs. O'Gall and Bitternut Lodge struck cold to my heart, and colder the thought of all the brine and foam destined, as it seemed, to rush between me and the master at whose side I now walked, and the coldest remembrance of the wider ocean, wealth, caste, custom intervened between me and what I naturally and inevitably loved. It is a long way, I again said. It is, to be sure, and when you get to Bitternut Lodge, Connaught, Ireland, I shall never see you again, Jane. That's morally certain. I never go over to Ireland, and not having myself much of a fancy for the country. We have been good friends, Jane, have we not? Yes, sir. And when friends are on the eve of separation, they like to spend the little time that remains to them close to each other. Come, we'll talk over the voyage and the parting quietly half an hour or so, while the stars enter into their shining life up in heaven yonder. Here is the chestnut tree. Here is the bench at its old roots. Come, we will sit here in peace tonight, though we should never more be destined to sit there together. He seated me and himself. It is a long way to Ireland, Janet, and I'm sorry to send my little friend on such weary travels. But if I can't do better, how is to be helped? Are you anything akin to me, do you think, Jane? I could risk no sort of answer by this time. My heart was still. Because, he said, I sometimes have a strange feeling with regard to you, especially when you are near me as now. It's as if I had a string somewhere under my left ribs, tightly and inextricably knotted to a similar string situated in the corresponding quarter of your little frame. If that boisterous channel and two hundred miles or so of land come broad between us, I'm afraid that cord of communion will be snapped then I have a nervous notion I should take to bleeding inwardly. As for you, you'd forget me. That I never should, sir. Jane, do you hear that nightingale singing in the wood? Listen. In listening, I sobbed convulsively, for I could repress what I endured no longer. I was obliged to yield and I was shaken from head to foot with acute distress. When I did speak, it was only to express an impetuous wish 
that I had never been born or never come to Thornfield. Because you were sorry to leave it, he asked. The vehemence of emotion stirred by grief and love within me was claiming mastery and struggling for full sway and asserting a right to predominate, to overcome, to live, rise and reign at last. Yes, and to speak. I grieve to leave Thornfield. I love Thornfield. I love it because I have lived in it a full and delightful life, momentarily at least. I have not been trampled on. I have not been petrified. I have not been buried with inferior minds and excluded from every glimpse of communion with what is bright and energetic and high. I have talked face to face with what I reverence, with what I delight in, with an original, vigorous, and expanded mind. I have known you, Mr. Rochester, and it strikes me with terror and anguish to feel I absolutely must be torn from you forever. I see the necessity of the departure. It is like looking on the necessity of death. Where do you see the necessity? He asked suddenly. Where? You, sir, have placed it before me. In what shape? In the shape of Miss Ingram, a noble and beautiful woman, your bride. My bride? What bride? I have no bride. But you will have. Yes, I will. He set his teeth. Then I must go. You have said it yourself. No, you must stay. I swear it, and the oath shall be kept. I tell you I must go, I retorted, roused to something like passion. Do you think I can stay to become nothing to you? Do you think I am an automaton, a machine without feelings? and can bear to have my morsel of bread snatched from my lips and my drop of living water dashed from my cup? Do you think because I am poor, obscure, plain and little, I am soulless and heartless? You think wrong. I have as much soul as you and full as much heart. And if God had gifted me with some beauty and much wealth, I should have made it as hard for you to leave me as it is now for me to leave you. I'm not talking to you now through the medium of custom, conventionalities, or even of mortal flesh. It is my spirit that addresses your spirit, just as if both had passed through the grave and we stood at God's feet, equal as we are. As we are, repeated Mr. Rochester. So, he added, enclosing me in his arms, gathering me to his chest, pressing his lips on my lips. So, Jane. Yes, so, sir, I rejoined. And yet not so, for you are a married man, or as good as married, and wed to one inferior to you, to one with whom you have no sympathy, whom I do not believe you truly love, for I have seen and heard you sneer at her. I would scorn such a union, therefore I am better than you. Let me go. Where, Jane? To Ireland? Yes, to Ireland. I've spoken my mind and can go anywhere now. Jane, be still. 
Don't struggle so, like a wild, frantic bird that is rendering its own plumage in desperation. I am no bird, and no net ensnares me. I am a free human being with an independent will, which I now exert to leave you. Another effort set me at liberty, and I stood erect before him. And your will shall decide your destiny, he said. I offer you my hand, my heart, and a share of all my possessions. You play a farce, which I merely laugh at. I ask you, Jane, to pass through life at my side, to be my second self and best earthly companion. For that fate, you have already made your choice and must abide by it. Jane, be still a few moments. You are overexcited. I will be still too. A waft of wind came sweeping down the laurel walk and trembled through the boughs of the chestnut. It wandered away, away to an indefinite distance. It died. The nightingale's long song was then the only voice of the hour. In listening to it, I again wept. Mr. Rochester sat quiet, looking at me gently and seriously. Some time passed before he spoke. He at last said, Come to my side, Jane, and let us explain and understand one another. I will never again come to your side, I replied. I am torn away now and cannot return. But Jane, I summon you as my wife. It is you only I intend to marry. I was silent. I thought he mocked me. Come, Jane, come hither. Your bride stands between us. He rose and with a stride reached me. My bride is here, he said, again drawing me to him because my equal is here, and my likeness. Jane, will you marry me? Still I did not answer, and still I writhed myself from his grasp, for I was still incredulous. Do you doubt me, Jane? Entirely. You have no faith in me? Not a whit. Am I a liar in your eyes? He asked passionately. Little skeptic, you shall be convinced. What love have I for Miss Ingram? None, and that you know. What love has she for me? None. As I have taken pains to prove, I caused a rumor to reach her that my fortune was not a third of what she supposed, and after that, I presented myself to see the result. It was coldness, both from her and her mother. I would not, I could not marry Miss Ingram. You, you strange, you almost unearthly thing, I love as my own flesh. You poor and obscure and small and plain as you are. I entreat you to accept me as a husband. What? Me? I returned, beginning in his earnestness and especially in his incivility to credit his sincerity. Me, who have not a friend in the world but you, if you are my friend, not a shilling but what you have given me. You, Jane. I must have you for my own, entirely my own. Will you be mine? Say yes, quickly. Mr. Rochester, let me look at your face. Turn to the moonlight. Why? Because I want to read your countenance. Turn. There, 
you will find it scarcely more legible than a crumpled, scratched page. Read on. Only make haste, for I suffer. His face was very much agitated and very much flushed. There were strong workings in the features, strange gleams in the eyes. Jane, you torture me, he said, with that searching and yet faithful and generous look. You torture me. How can I do that? If you are true and your offer real, my only feelings to you must be gratitude and devotion. They cannot torture. Gratitude, he said and added wildly. Jane, accept me, quickly. Say, Edward, give me my name. Edward, I will marry you. Are you in earnest? Do you truly love me? Do you sincerely wish me to be your wife? I do. And if an oath is necessary to satisfy you, I swear it. Then, sir, I will marry you. Edward, my little wife, he returned. Dear Edward, I replied, come to me, come to me entirely now, he said, and added in his deepest tone, speaking in my ear as his cheek was laid on mine, make my happiness and I will make yours. God pardon me. He subjoined ere long, and man meddle not with me. I have her, and will hold her. There is no one to meddle, sir. I have no kindred to interfere. No, that is the best of it, he said. And if I had loved him less, I should have thought his accent and look of exultation frightening. But sitting by him, roused from the nightmare of parting, called to the paradise of union, I thought only of the bliss given me to drink in so abundant a flow. Again and again he said, Are you happy, Jane? And again and again I answered, Yes. After which he murmured, will atone. It will atone. Have I not found her friendless and cold and comfortless? Will I not guard and cherish and solace her? Is there not love in my heart and constancy in my resolves? It will expire at God's tribunal. I know my maker sanctions what I do for the world's judgment. I wash my hands thereof. For man's opinion, I defy it. But what had befallen the night? The moon was not yet set, and we were all in shadow. I could scarcely see my master's face, near as I was. And what ailed the chestnut tree? It writhed and groaned, while wind roared in the laurel walk and came sweeping over us. We must go in, said Mr. Rochester. The weather changes. I could have sat with thee till morning, Jane. And so, thought I, could I with you? I should have said so, perhaps, as a livid, vivid spark leapt out of a cloud at which I was looking, and there was a crack a crash, and a close, rattling peal, and I thought only of hiding my dazzled eyes against Mr. Rochester's shoulder. The rain rushed down. He hurried me up the wall, through the grounds, and into the house, but we were quite wet before we could pass the threshold. He was taking off my shawl in the hall, and shaking the water out of my loosened hair when Mrs. Fairfax emerged from her room. I did not observe her at first, 
nor did Mr. Rochester. The lamp was lit. The clock was on the stroke of twelve. Hasten to take off your wet things, said he, and before you go, good night, good night, my darling. He kissed me repeatedly. When I looked up, on leaving his arms, there stood the widow, pale, grave, and amazed. I only smiled at her and ran upstairs. Explanation will do for another time, thought I. Still, when I reached my chamber, I felt a pang at the idea she should even temporarily misconstrue what she had seen. But joy soon effaced every other feeling, and loud as the wind blew, near and deep as the thunder crashed, fierce and frequent as the lightning gleamed, cataract-like as the rain fell during a storm of two hours' duration, I experienced no fear and little awe. Mr. Rochester came thrice to my door in the course of it to ask if I was safe and tranquil, and that was comfort. That was strength for anything. Before I left my bed in the morning, little Adele came running in to tell me that the great horse chestnut at the bottom of the orchard had been struck by lightning in the night, and half of it split away. Chapter 24 As I rose and dressed, I thought over what had happened and wondered if it were a dream. I could not be certain of the reality till I had seen Mr. Rochester again and heard him renew his words of love and promise. While arranging my hair, I looked at my face in the glass and felt it was no longer plain. There was hope in its aspect and life in its colour, and my eyes seemed as if they had beheld the fount of fruition and borrowed beams from the lustrous ripple. I had often been unwilling to look at my master because I feared he could not be pleased at my look, but I was sure I might lift my face to his now and not cool his affection by its expression. I took a plain but clean and light summer dress from my drawer and put it on. It seemed no attire had ever so well become me because none had I ever worn in so blissful a mood. I was not surprised when I ran down into the hall to see that a brilliant June morning had succeeded to the tempest of the night and to feel, through the open glass door, the breathing of a fresh and fragrant breeze. Nature must be gladsome when I was so happy. A beggar woman and her little boy, pale, ragged objects both, were coming up the walk, and I ran down and gave them all the money I happened to have in my purse, some three or four shillings. Good or bad, they must partake of my jubilee. The rooks cawed, the blitherbirds sang, but none was so merry or so musical as my own rejoicing heart. Mrs. Fairfax surprised me by looking out of the window with a sad countenance and saying gravely, Miss Eyre, will you come to breakfast? During the meal, she was quiet and cool, but I could not undeceive her then. I must wait for my master to give explanations, and so must she. I ate what I could, 
and then I hastened upstairs. I met Adele, leaving the schoolroom. Where are you going? It is time for lessons, I asked. Mr. Rochester has sent me away to the nursery, she answered. Where is he? In there, pointing to the apartment she had left. I went in, and there he stood. Come and bid me good morning, said he. I gladly advanced, and it was not merely a cold word now, or even a shake of the hand that I received, but an embrace and a kiss. It seemed natural. It seemed genial to be so well-loved, so caressed by him. Jane, you look blooming and smiling and pretty, said he. Truly pretty this morning. Is this my pale little elf? Is this my mustard seed? This sunny-faced girl with the dimpled cheek and rosy lips, satin-smooth hazel hair and the radiant hazel eyes. I had green eyes, reader, but you must excuse the mistake. For him, they were new-dyed, I suppose. It is Jane Eyre, sir. Soon to be Jane Rochester, he added. In four weeks, Janet, not a day more. Do you hear that? I did, and I could not quite comprehend it. It made me giddy. The feeling the announcement sent through me was something stronger than was consistent with joy. Something that smote and stunned. It was, I think, almost fear. You blushed. Now you are white, Jane. What is that for? Because you gave me a new name. Jane Rochester. It seems so strange. Yes, Mrs. Rochester, said he. Young Mrs. Rochester. Fairfax Rochester's girl bride. It can never be, sir. It does not sound likely. Human beings never enjoy complete happiness in this world. I was not born for a different destiny to the rest of my species. To imagine such a lot befalling me is a fairy tale, a daydream, which I can and will realize, he replied. I shall begin today. This morning I wrote to my banker in London to send me the certain jewels he has in his keeping, heirlooms for the ladies of Thornfield. In a day or two, I hope to pour them into your lap, for every privilege, every attention shall be yours that I would accord a peer's daughter if about to marry her. Oh, sir, never rain jewels. I don't like to hear them spoken of. Jewels for Jane Eyre sounds unnatural and strange. I would rather not have them. I will myself put the diamond chain around your neck and the circlet on your forehead, which it will become for nature at least has stamped her patent of nobility on this brow, Jane and I will clasp the bracelets on these fine wrists and load these fairy-like fingers with rings. No, sir, no. Think of other subjects and speak of other things in another strain. Don't address me as if I were a beauty. I'm your plain, humble governess. You are a beauty in my eyes and a beauty just after the desire of my heart, delicate and aerial. Puny and insignificant, you mean. You are dreaming, sir, or you are sneering. For God's sake, don't be ironical. I will make the world acknowledge you a beauty too, he went on, while I really became uneasy at the strain he had adopted 
because I felt he was either deluding himself or trying to delude me. I will attire my Jane in satin and lace, and she shall have roses in her hair, and I will cover the head I love best with a priceless veil. And then you won't know me, sir, and I shall not be your Jane Eyre any longer but an ape in a harlequin's jacket, a jay in borrowed plumes. I would as soon see you, Mr. Rochester, tricked out in stage trappings as myself clad in a court lady's robe. And I don't call you handsome, sir, though I love you most dearly, far too dearly to flatter you. Don't flatter me. He pursued his theme, however, without noticing my deprecation. This very day I shall take you in the carriage to Milcote, and you must choose some dresses for yourself. I told you we shall be married in four weeks. The wedding is to take place quietly in the church down below yonder, then I shall waft you away at once to town. After a brief stay there, I shall bear my treasure to regions nearer the sun, to French vineyards and Italian plains, and she shall see whatever is famous in old story and in modern record. She shall taste, too, of the life of cities, and she shall learn to value herself by just comparison with others. Shall I travel? And with you, sir? You shall sojourn at Paris, Rome and Naples, at Florence, Venice and Vienna. All the ground I have wandered over shall be retrodden by you. Wherever I stamped my hoof, your sylph's foot shall step also. Ten years since I flew through Europe half mad with disgust, hate, and rage as my companions. Now I shall revisit it healed and cleansed with a very angel as my comforter. I laughed at him as he said this. I'm not an angel, I asserted, and will not be one till I die. I will be myself, Mr. Rochester. You must neither expect nor exact anything celestial of me, for you will not get it any more than I shall get it of you, which I do not at all anticipate. What do you anticipate of me? For a little while, you will perhaps be as you are now, a very little while, then you will turn cool, then you will be capricious, then you will be stern, and I shall have much ado to please you. But when you will get well used to me, you will perhaps like me again. Like me, I say, not love me. I suppose your love will effervesce in six months or less. I have observed in books written by men that period assigned as the farthest to which a husband's ardor extends. Yet after all, as a friend and companion, I hope never to become quite distasteful to my dear master. Distasteful? And like you again? I think I shall like you again, and yet again. I will make you confess I do not only like, but I love you with truth, fervor, constancy. Yet you are not capricious, sir. To women who please me only by their faces, I am the very devil when I find they have neither souls nor hearts. When they open to me a perspective of flatness, triviality, and perhaps imbecility, coarseness, and ill-temper. But to the clear eye and eloquent tongue, to the soul made of fire, and the character that bends but does not break, 
at once supple and stable, tractable and consistent, I am ever tender and true. Have you ever experienced of such a character, sir? Did you ever love such a one? I love it now. But before me, if I indeed in any respect come up to your difficult standard, I never met your likeness, Jane. You please me, and you master me. You seem to submit, and I like the sense of pliancy you impart. But while I am twinning the soft, silken skein round my finger, it sends a thrill up my arm to my heart. I am influenced, conquered, and the influence is sweeter than I can express, and the conquest I undergo as a witchery beyond any triumph I can win.